What is your current total count of the recipe graves you've found? At this point, there are at least 18 recipe gravestones around the world. One of my favorites is in Nome, Alaska. Mm. It's a cool grave just in terms of its shape because it's like a mini obelisk. And there are different designs and inscriptions on each side of the obelisk. And one of those sides has a recipe for a no-bake chocolate oatmeal cookie. And at the very bottom, it's got an engraving of a Cool Whip container. So there's a lot to love about that grave. <laughs> like the actual brand Cool Whip, like the... Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that, that tub that we all know and love. Yeah, that's right at the bottom of this obelisk. Man, that's a real commitment. <laughs> you gotta love you Cool Whip. You have got to yeah. really love Cool Whip to be like, put it on the grave, baby. For the uninitiated, recipe graves are exactly what they sound like. Imagine a big marble gravestone with a recipe for cookies etched into it. I'm Dylan Thuris, and this is Atlas Obscura, a celebration of the world's strange, incredible, and wondrous places. And today, I am talking to Gastro Obscura's senior editor and our very own recipe grave beat reporter, Sam O'Brien. Today, Sam is going to tell me the story behind the mysterious Cool Whip Grave, And we're going to go a little deeper to talk about not just how food and recipes can help us remember the dead, but how in some cases they help us heal from our grief. More after this. There are over 75 million monthly Tubi viewers. That's more people than there are in France which means Tubi is more popular than cigarettes for breakfast. It's more popular than considering iced coffee a total abomination. More popular than loving political revolutions. More popular than mer and mer somehow being different words. Tubi, it's more popular than being French. See you in there. If you're looking for a place where the wide-open skies and the towering mountains inspire you to find an untapped part of yourself. You might want to take a trip to Wyoming. It's a place where bold, curious spirits forge their own way on all types of adventures. There is no shortage of iconic, expansive landscapes out there. You can discover breathtaking hikes, stunning state parks, authentic Western culture, and other historic sites, along with the tales of famous outlaws like Butch Cassidy and pioneers like Buffalo Bill Cody. The truth lies west. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com. So let's talk about that Cool Whip gravestone. How did you first come across it? I first came across it on like a travel blog that was about like, you know, a few days in Nome, Alaska, like sort of off the beaten path things to do. And the the writer, who's also a photographer, had a photo of the, the grave, but it was like just the side of the the recipe. So there's no like identifying information. So I reached out to the parks department in Nome, Alaska, and the guy like immediately wrote back and he was like, I'm not familiar with this grave. So I'm going to hand you over to the mayor. Yes. And the mayor gets in contact with me like immediately as well. And he's like, I'm not familiar with the grave. 
but I could head over to the cemetery and walk around and look for you. Yes. So he then um, he goes to the cemetery. It's snowing. There's snow all over the ground. So he emails me these photos from the cemetery, and it's just like the tip of the obelisk. <laughs> and so he's like, the snow's really hard. I'm going to have to come back with a shovel. All I can see right now is my grandma Bonnie, which was actually a nice clue, something yeah. I didn't have before. And I was like, Mayor John, you don't have to go back with the shovel. Like, thanks. I so love much that you have this. the mayor of Nome, Alaska doing like <laughs> manual labor on your behalf. Yeah. He's like out shoveling. <laughs> That's this is as it should be. Right. The uh, grave belonged to a woman named Bonnie Johnson. Hmm. That's who my grandma Bonnie was. The recipe is for no-bake oatmeal cookies that sort of all revolve around pretty shelf-stable ingredients. It's like sugar, Swiss Miss cocoa. They're very adamant about that. It's got to be Swiss Miss. Quick oats, peanut butter, vanilla, and then margarine and milk. And then you just like drop the mixture on wax paper and let it set. And then you have these little like sweet pucks. I have to say, these strike me as all ingredients you might be able to get like in a winter in Alaska, right? This is not like yeah. fresh this or fr this is stuff that sits on a, in a pantry, right? Exactly. So basically when Bonnie was raising her family, she had four kids. This is in like 60s, 70s, 80s Alaska. It's still very much the frontier. Yeah. Um, so most of their shelf-stable groceries came via barge and that barge stopped coming over the winter. So you'd get like your last supply of those bulk groceries in September and you had to stretch those. And you're probably wondering, where does the Cool Whip come in? I am wondering. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So she didn't put Cool Whip in the recipe, but in another example of how Bonnie had this whole waste not want not approach, she would always serve the cookies in Cool Whip containers. So when the, the family sort of moved her out of her longtime home when she was getting older, they just found stacks upon stacks of these Cool Whip containers. Because, yeah, they were just very important to her in, in her signature dish. This is like the icon, right? So tell me a little bit more about Bonnie and, and, and why this ended up on, on her gravestone. You know, what, what was the other parts of her life? She was from Washington State but sort of just packed up her whole life and, and moved to Alaska. She just drove there in a station wagon in about 1957. And this is before Alaska is even a state. So she, she moves there. She gets to see Alaska become a state. She attends the big parade and Eisenhower's there. So she's lived a pretty storied life. This is also why Bonnie's gravestone is super cool and just why I think everybody should take time to, to linger on a grave because... There's so much encoded in every symbol, in every line. She's got the recipe. She's got the Cool Whip container. And then there's also beach glass surrounding the mm. obelisk because Bonnie loved to walk along the beach at Nome. But on another side, she has a plane. And that's mm. to symbolize the many years she spent as a flight attendant for an early airline uh, at Alaska. She was a flight attendant for a very long time. She loved it. Her family found, like, letters and photos from her time as a flight attendant. And like, she's got like entries in her diary where she's like, I look cuter than the other flight attendants in my little <laughs> uniform. So it's like, Bonnie, I love you. 
So yeah, she was kind of a a, a pistol. You're painting such a, a lovely picture of this woman, like Bonnie, frontier flight attendant. Exactly. Four kids at home holding the Cool Whip container with the signature cookies. I love this lady. <laughs> I can't help but sort of think about this connection between remembering someone and remembering the food they made. The smells of a kitchen are such kind of deeply personal memories. They're memories that reach way back into childhood sometimes. And I'm just wondering about sort of this connection between food and death. It seems it seems like there's a, a, a big thing there. And I'm curious if you've explored other ways in which that is kind of expressed or explored? I've always been very interested in the role food plays in grieving, and particularly when it comes to recipe gravestones, it's more than novelty. Right. So I wanted to to see if anyone's sort of exploring that on a more, like, clinical level, on a more psychological hmm. level. And yeah. there is someone, her name's Heather Nickrand, and she's a bereavement coordinator and a social worker in Illinois, and she started a super cool program. It's called the Culinary Grief Therapy Program. And the way it works is she teams up with two cooking instructors from a local community college. They teach in the culinary program there. And they sort of do this amazing blend of group therapy and like cooking school. Usually it's widows or widowers who are learning to, you know, cook for one for the first time or yeah. You know, gender roles being what they've been for a very long time. Widowers are like totally overwhelmed with how to care for themselves when their wife dies. So it's shopping. It's learning to cook for one. It's learning to cook overall. And while they do that, they talk and they they heal and they remember. God, there's all of the aspect of like, I've lost this person that that you know, was half of your brain is you're married for yeah. a long time. You just become one kind of unit. And then suddenly it's like, oh, there's these skills I don't have. But then it's also like cooking is so deeply personal. It's such an act of love that we give to another person when you when you cook someone a meal. And so there's just got to be a lot of emotion packed into that experience. I spoke with one of the chefs who teaches at the program. Her name is Laura Lurdell. Hmm. And uh, Laura definitely talked about how food and sense memory can be very triggering for these people. For example, we do a cookie baking every Christmas, yeah. right? Yeah. We have, what, 70 people come and bake. And these are people who are sobbing and putting glitter on their cookies because it's the first time they're doing it without grandma. And, and so it is a really neat environment for people who get it to come be with other people who get it. And that helps them a lot. I think about my own family, like who cooks in the family, what it will be like when they're gone, you know, and it's just like, what a, what a deep well of emotion this must be for people. I also think like, it's interesting because it's like it's a sideways approach, right? It's a way to talk about death and deal with death that doesn't necessarily trigger everyone's panic about death. Absolutely. Um, I mean, we live in America where yeah. death is kind of forbidden to <laughs> yeah. talk about. So having sort of a, a gateway, having like an icebreaker, if you will, uh, is nice. And so Laura said it's kind of given her this nice new perspective on death and healing. People in, the, in America, I think, are really weird about death. They're really, really weird about death. And I think one of the big mistakes that we made was hiding it. 
Like nobody gets their hands dirty anymore. They don't bury their loved one. They don't have a home wake. I think people need to be allowed to feel these things and do these things and be connected to these things just to have closure and just to not be so afraid of death. Yeah. There's a way in which just shifting away from this deep place of fear into one of kind of acceptance and even exploring ways of memorializing the people you've lost in this case obviously through food is a is a really powerful connection i um what a fascinating way to help people I- explore an idea that can be so kind of frightening and and painful yeah and it it allows you to focus on like you said the positive aspects of it um I'm a hospice volunteer, and usually people say yeah. to me, that must be so depressing. And sometimes it is, but it's on the whole not. When you talk to family members, like, they're filled with love. You know, it's terrifying and scary, but it's an opportunity to, to celebrate life, even at the time of death and, and shortly after. And that's one of the things that the program does is it's actually a program that they have at the, the end of the course is called Celebrating Life with Food. Mm. And it's this amazing night where the students bring uh, recipes that were either created by their loved ones or loved by their loved ones. And uh, they prepare them in these like sort of mini kitchens that are set up in the class. They have the dish. They have a candle and then they have a photo of uh, the person who's passed on. And then the uh, teachers go around the room and they each share the story of the dish. And it ends up being this very, very beautiful experience, very emotional experience, um, which can be hard, but on the whole ends up being very cathartic. And then they all, you know, they toast the deceased uh, loved one. And I, I absolutely love it. Like a dinner party with the dead. Exactly. Laura said it's it's very intense, you know, yeah. like people, uh, they're carrying a lot of emotions. So sometimes there's crying, there's trembling. Uh, they might need to take some breaks so they can gather themselves, but they get through it. Laura mentioned that it can help people sort of get a piece of themselves back mm. that they might have felt like they lost with the the death of their loved one. Like this one woman Laura told me about. She had not baked since she lost her husband. And she came for the Christmas thing and made cookies and then went home and dusted off a recipe box. And we got a letter from her grandchildren thanking us for giving them their grandma back. That's really touching. I'm curious, did Laura and the other folks in this program, had they ever heard of these recipe graves? Were they familiar with this kind of aspect of cooking and death? They weren't. And uh, I love telling people about it if they're not familiar with, with the concept of a recipe grave. But they they loved it. They were yeah. like, oh, my God, this this sounds totally up our alley. They're all about commemorating a person with a recipe. Uh, Yeah. It definitely made a lot of sense to them. Why don't we head out of the show with one more recipe grave story? One of my favorite recipe graves is uh, a particular one that's Christmas cookies. It belongs to Maxine Menster and... uh, on the grave itself, it's, it says Mom's Christmas Cookies. That's the name of the recipe. That is how tied to her this recipe is. Yeah. It's a simple recipe, but it's more than that. Like on its on its surface, you're like, they're sugar cookies. Mm. But um, the meaning behind the recipe is so much more. I was talking to her daughter, Jane, and Jane was like, the cookies go back several generations. Like her mother would wake up on her family's farm in Iowa every Christmas morning. And she would go downstairs to the Christmas tree and they would hang the cookies from the Christmas tree. Mm. And that was 
the way she grew up every Christmas. Yeah. And then when she had her own kids, they would make the Christmas cookies every Christmas. And so every Christmas, it would be Maxine's parents, her kids, all crowded into the kitchen, rolling dough, baking, cutting them into different shapes. That's one of the reasons why I think so many of these these recipes are tied to to rituals and traditions like the holidays, because those are so wrapped up in memories. They still make the cookies today, every Christmas. And, um, you know, Jane, the daughter, was saying it it can still be painful, remembering her, her mother, knowing she's no longer there. But the cookies help, you know, making the cookies connects her to her mom and connects her to her grandparents. And they play a huge part in, in easing that pain. That was the always incredible Sam O'Brien, Atlas Obscura's resident recipe grave reporter and senior editor at Gastro Obscura. She's been on the show before talking about the Spritz Cookie Gravestone in Brooklyn and the Grandma Ida Nut Roll Gravestone in Israel. She's written several articles about these recipe graves. There are links to all of this in the show notes, so check it out. And I have a final request for you. If you know of a recipe grave, Maybe you have have created one for a loved one, or maybe you've just seen one at a local cemetery. Please get in touch. Give us a call at 315-992-7902 and leave us a message. Or record a voice memo and email it to us at hello at atlasobscura.com. We would love to find any that we are missing. So get in touch. See you next time. This episode was produced by Johanna Mayer. Our podcast is a co-production of Atlas Obscura and Stitcher Studios. The production team includes Doug Baldinger, Chris Naka, Camille Stanley, Manolo Morales, Baudelaire, Gabby Gladney. Our technical director is Casey Holford. This episode was mixed by Luce Fleming. And our theme and end credit music is by Sam Tyndall. I'm Dylan Thuris, wishing you all the wonder in the world. I will see you next time. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions.